Moi, j'adore dire que nos vies sont végétales. Bienvenue dans Flowers. Welcome to Flowers by Kenzo Parfum. This podcast seeks out committed flower experts working towards a sustainable and fair vision of flowers for a more beautiful world. Je suis Noline Serda. I am Noline Serda. They are taking on a mission, growing flowers sustainably and introducing their gentler perspective on flower farming to the public. It's the slow flower movement, locally grown seasonal flowers for a slower ethical consumption. This movement has become Masami Charlotte Lavaux's work ethos. She's an activist flower farmer, founder of Plein Air, the first flower farm in Paris. Masami Charlotte has been the ambassador of Flower by Kenzo since 2022. Inspiring and inspired, every day she works towards a more beautiful world, fundamental value shared by Kenzo Parfum. With this in mind, I've joined her to meet people who act, each in their own way, for a living flower, and who inspire her in her daily work. In this second episode, we are going to examine flowers, their history, their genetic heritage. Where do they come from? How do they live? To answer these questions, Masami Charlotte spoke remotely with Edwige Moirou, a plant geneticist at the University of Cambridge. Hello, thank you so much for being with us. And could you introduce yourself? Tell us what your job is, where you are, and also what your journey has been until now. Of course. My name is Edwige Moirou. I was born in France. I completed all my studies in France, including my PhD in plant biology. And following my PhD, I came to England, to Cambridge, and that's where I am at the moment. So I have a team of researchers at Cambridge, and we really study flower development, and especially how flowers create microscopic tools to communicate with insects. So I trained as a biologist, a plant geneticist specializing in flora, really. It's really going to be an ignorant question because we can't imagine, if we're not a part of it, that there's a real scientific community around flowers. And because flowers in the collective imagination are very pointless things, they are also very normal, totally usual. But how long have we been studying the origin of flowers and is it important to study flowers? Yes. So, well, obviously my answer is going to be a bit biased. But yes, humans have studied and asked questions about flowers since the beginning of humanity, I'd say. They are living beings, like animals are. I often say that flowers are victims of their own success because, in fact, flowering plants have been so good at conquering land that they are everywhere. And since they are everywhere, well, we tend to notice them less. When you see a strange and rare animal, you notice it straight away, whereas plants that are everywhere while it's obviously easy to think that they are part of the wallpaper, actually. Flowering plants are often like wallpaper because, being very different from animals when it comes to appearance, it's very easy to forget that they are alive. Their life rhythm is different. They move, but much more slowly than animals. And it's true that often, when people say they want to study aliens, little green men, I actually tell them that those little green men are already on Earth. They are the flowering plants. It's a completely different philosophy. So yes, there is a very active scientific community working on flowering plants for two reasons. 
First, because human life is completely dependent on flowering plants. Our food, but also textiles we wear, like cotton, for example. And then even the animals we rely on consume large amounts of plants. They are completely dependent on flowering plants. So without flowers, there is no human life. That's a very clear fact. And then the other reason, actually, is that because their lifestyle is completely different, it's a truly fascinating system when you want to understand what the foundation of life is and how cells work, to be able to study both human and plant cells at the same time, to find out what are the signs, the things that are identical. It's really important. So there is also a lot of fundamental research. Plants are also very good tools to simply understand life's foundation, and not just plant life. Et donc il y a beaucoup de similitudes. So are there many similarities between humans and flowers? Alors quand on regarde à l'échelle du tout petit, so when you look at it on a micro level, so at the gene, the DNA, the cell levels, there are many similarities. There are also many differences. For example, in plant cells, there are these fantastic factories that are capable of capturing light to produce energy. That's what enables plants to do what we call photosynthesis, and that's why flowering plants are green. We are not capable of photosynthesizing. But in terms of how cells behave, how cells divide, how cells decide to grow, how genes are used, there are many, many similarities. So actually, to try and understand how a living organism is built, it's a bit like playing with Lego. It's blocks, except these blocks are cells, and they are blocks that are... In fact, it's the most beautiful Lego in the world, because they are blocks that are able to self-reproduce and to change shape. And whether they are human cells or plant cells, well, a lot of the problems to solve are identical, and plants are really... They're what we call model species. They're actually good laboratory models, because they help us really answer these questions in detail. So you have actually already answered the question, but when you wonder who lives around flowers and who lives thanks to flowers, I feel like it's kind of everyone. It is kind of everyone. Now, it's always the same. You can check who the direct neighbors are. A flowering plant is never isolated. It's part of an ecosystem. There are generally different flowering plant species that like to, quote-unquote, be together. There is an entire system of insects, or of even more microscopic animals, that depend on these flowering plants, that will usually also be associated with them. In some cases, these associations are so, so specific that without the flowering plant, the insect declines, and therefore is lost. So, these associations are really at the level of absolute dependence. And many more things also occur in the soil, actually, at the root level. Many flowering plants actually have companion mushrooms, with which they have a very close partnership. It's, again, a very, very strong underground relationship that truly enables the flower to extract soil resources in the best possible way. So there are many, many interdependent relationships, either short or long distance. But in any case, yes, humans benefit from all these close relationships. And so do we know since when and why flowers exist? And do we know how they appeared? 
Alors, on a des éléments de réponse. So, we have part of the answer. We don't have the last piece of the puzzle yet, which is exciting. We know that there have been flowering plants for at least 125 million years. So we know that flowering plants, in fact, existed at the same time as dinosaurs and before the extinction of dinosaurs. So, in the period called the Cretaceous, flowering plants already existed. We don't really know if the oldest fossils we have, the oldest flowering plant prints, are truly the earliest. Or there is also a possibility that there have been many flowering plants for a very, very long time. We just don't have any tangible evidence of their existence at this stage. And actually, we think it may be the case because for a very long time, people were looking for fossils of plants with very large flowers, thinking that ancient flowers are maybe like magnolia flowers and they couldn't find them. And in fact, it's when scientists really started looking for very small microscopic flowers that they found them. The first flowering plants, many were so small that actually they are here, we have traces of them, but you really have to look closely. Why did flowering plants appear? So, as often with evolution, we don't know why things appeared. They appeared because they could. However, what we do know is why they stayed and why they spread so efficiently. And in fact, it's because flowers are really formidable seduction and reproduction tools. There were many plants before flowering plants that didn't have flowers, and actually, these plants had separate male and female reproductive organs, so they struggled much more to connect the male and female parts necessary to produce the next generation. Flowers group all their organs into a single structure, which makes it much easier for the male and female parts to find each other. And also, it allows for the addition of decorative parts, like petals, that create a structure that is really... <laughs> Not only are the male and female parts next to each other, but now there's an advertising system around these reproductive parts to really attract animal vectors and, in fact, manipulate animals to help them make the flower's reproduction really efficient. And also, this flower system makes it possible. Without flowers, there aren't any fruits, and fruits help disperse seeds in a more efficient way. So it's true that this is what we call a novelty complex, actually. Evolution has created many completely new things, great innovations that truly make a difference, which means that flowering plants from a few individuals... Actually, we know all flowering plants come from a single ancestor, so flora was invented once. There were probably many tests, many drafts to try and create the first flower. But in fact, once the flower as we know it was put into place, it made it possible for flowering plants to spread and to really colonize all the biotops, all the ecosystems we know. And so this microscopic flower, the one we closely search for, or what we call the, the flower nowadays, what is it exactly? It's, it's petals, you said? The beauty of flowers is their simplicity. And even then, you can take two flowers that look very different. But you are always going to find the same pieces. I always use the Lego analogy because it's really that. Actually, there are four types of organs in a flower. There are the pollen-producing organs, which are the male organs, 
They're the stamens that we see well because they usually produce this orange and golden pollen. And in the middle of these male organs, you have what we call the female organs, which are either pistil or carpal. There are different names. They, in fact, contain the ovules, the female cells that are going to be important for reproduction. So these really are the reproductive parts, but they are often not the parts we notice. When you think of a flower, you obviously think about petals, which are the widest parts that are colorful and that are the parts that really catch the eye. And then, outside of these petals, if you picture a flower bud, you don't see the petals. What you see are usually flat and green organs that we call sepals, and their main function is to protect the flower's organs, which means that as long as the flower is closed, you have these hard green parts which can help ensure the flower is not going to be eaten, for example, and which also protect it against parasites and herbivores. And actually, with these four pieces, by simply changing their quantity, by changing their shape, by changing their color, we can create a vast diversity of flower shapes. So from a basic model, in fact, a breathtaking diversity was born, which means that now we don't know how many flowering plants there are. There are too many. And no one is able to fully count them, and we discover new species every day. But at least 350,000 flowering plant species come from that base model. Bienvenue à l'herbier du muséum. Donc on est au muséum d'histoire naturelle à Paris, dans le site du Jardin des Plantes. Et c'est là où on trouve l'herbier le plus grand du monde, qui a été complètement numérisé en 2013. Et on y trouve des plantes de plus de 170 000 espèces de partout dans le monde, en fait. Et moi, je suis Thomas Avermans. Je travaille ici en tant que chargé de conservation des monocotylédones, donc la famille du blé et du bambou. Et je suis aussi chercheur botaniste où je travaille sur la systématique, donc comment les classer. La classification euh, botanique est basée sur les, euh, les similarités entre les organes reproducteurs des plantes, la plupart du temps. Donc là, on va se baser pour classer cette espèce dans le genre Magnolia sur des affinités, la morphologie de sa fleur, est-ce qu'elle répond à la morphologie de tous les Magnolia donc des pétales de taille plus ou moins irrégulière en spirale, ensuite des étamines en spirale et des parties femelles en spirale également. Et donc si ça correspond à ça, on va le mettre dans le genre Magnolia. On peut aussi, si on trouve des, des différences, on peut décider de créer un autre genre qui serait distinct de Magnolia parce que les fleurs sont organisées d'une autre façon en fait. Même si d'apparence la fleur a l'air d'être une fleur de Magnolia, oui, ça peut en être fait, une... En fait, spirale, là, là c'est la notion de convergence. Mmh. Ça peut ressembler à un magnolia, mais ça n'a rien à voir avec un magnolia. Et donc, on peut l'avoir classé par erreur avec les magnolia, et en fait, c'est quelque chose de complètement différent. Et ça arrive tout le monde, hein Ça arrive tout le temps. Pendant très longtemps, on avait probablement des idées. For a long time, we probably had the wrong idea about what the first flowering plant looked like. That's why we struggled to find fossils. And there are various ways of trying to understand. The first flowering plant has disappeared. We won't be able to find it. So there are two main ways of imagining what it could look like. We can find a few fossils and then use these fossils to imagine what the first flowering plant looked like. Or something that has been done more recently is to actually say that all current flowering plants come from the same ancestor. And so if we compare them and look at the shared features, it can help us understand what the first flowering plant looked like. So that's a study that was actually undertaken a few 
few years ago. And actually, the first flowering plant probably looks like a magnolia flower, meaning that the different organs we talked about are there. Sepals, petals, stamens, and pistil. But these organs, in fact, tend to be organized in a spiral form, so it doesn't really make a flat structure. It makes something a bit more like a small, compressed pine cone. Cone-bearing conifers are the group that actually predated flowering plants. So there was probably a slight spiral-shaped structure that wasn't completely compressed. Unfortunately, we have no idea about colors, so it's hard to tell if flowering plants were able to be colored. We we have examples of conifers that are starting to produce pigments in their cones, so we think that it shouldn't have been hard to do, and it's something that must have given them a huge advantage. So there is a great chance that the first flowering plants got colors very quickly. So there you go. Imagining microscopic magnolia flowers may be the best way to actually think about the first flowering plants. What makes the flowers suddenly appear at the tip of the stem? So that's a question of development and not evolution. For us, it's easier to study. It's something we made a lot of progress with in the past 30 years, really. Especially by studying some species that have features making them good laboratory species. 15 years ago, we started checking if the discoveries made in these species could also be applied to other species, and indeed, yes they can. Well, there are variations, but we think we have really started understanding great universal principles that enable plants to flower. When a seed germinates, plants don't start making flowers immediately. They produce leaves. It's a bit like the flowering plant's childhood. And in their teens, well, flowering plants go through a quite traumatic event, which would be the equivalent of puberty in humans, where they can still produce leaves. But they are now capable of producing flowers and reproductive organs to start making seeds. So what triggers this decision? It's a combination of internal elements in the plant. The plant is quite big. It's at the end of its childhood, but it's also in response to external elements. Because flowering plants can't really run, therefore they are receptive to environmental signs, such as temperature, length of daylight. We know that, for example, annual plants are going to germinate and produce leaves. And then, at the end of winter, beginning of spring, they'll start flowering. And actually, the way plants are able to detect spring is because they're able to detect the length of daylight. So when days are short, like now, there isn't enough light to enable them to press the flowering button, so they stay in what we call the vegetative state. They continue to only produce leaves. And when days are getting long enough, it enables them to actually change the way they use their genes, and instead of producing leaves, they start making flowers. For this, I have talked about the length of, day, of daytime, but plants are also capable of measuring the length of winter. Many plants need to spend several weeks in the cold, otherwise they're not able to flower. That's why often, with a very cold winter, comes a spring full of flowers, because plants have been very stimulated, which means that as soon as conditions are good, they're ready to flower, and we have this sort of blossoming, this explosion of flowers, where all flowering plants are starting to bloom at the same time. 
des grandes découvertes que vous avez faites, c'est... And one of the great discoveries you've made is... You've discovered something wonderful called the blue halo. Can you tell us about it? Oui, alors ça, comme souvent les découvertes les plus intéressantes, c'est toujours des petits accidents. Yes, so as often with the most interesting discoveries, it's thanks to little accidents. Especially when you're interested in the insect-plant communication, it's often very difficult because the things we notice are not necessarily what insects will see. And there are many things that insects perceive that we don't. And in this case, we got lucky because I was walking in the botanical garden looking for a species that would be a good laboratory species to pose completely different questions. In fact, we noticed that some species are very shiny with very shiny petals that create a sort of metallic color, often bluish. So we wondered where that color was coming from. We talked about it with the physics collaborators, also at Cambridge, and they told us that it was actually a very well-known physical phenomenon, not necessarily in flowering plants. We didn't know it existed in flowering plants, but many animals use it. If you think, for example, of peacock's feathers, or many blue butterflies that are called morpho butterflies have a very beautiful blue wings. These colors are not using chemical pigments, but they're colors that were simply created by tiny microscopic structures that can separate light and reveal the colors hidden in white light. So in our case, in the blue butterfly's case, the color is the color selected is the color blue. And the rainbow colors are present in white light. But by manipulating and separating these colors, we can manage to select some. And these colors are interesting because they're much brighter than the ones made of pigments. And they also last much longer. So we found found fruits or flowers in herbariums that had been picked over 100 years ago, and the pigments had disappeared and turned brown. On the other hand, the colors created by these tiny microscopic structures are still here, identical to their first day. So for us, it was actually a truly interesting discovery, because we realized that we could find and pick many flower species in the botanical garden that weren't event cousins, but that were quite far from each other from an evolutionary perspective. And they all use the same method, those tiny microscopic ridges that enable them to divide light. And what's interesting is that, again, when we spoke to our colleagues in physics, they found that these tiny microscopic ridges were really messy compared to the optical systems they were used to. They weren't perfect. They had different lengths, <laughs> some were cut off, some were thicker than others. And really, for us, the discovery was realizing that despite this mess and the difference between different species, they all had the same effect, which was to select the color blue. Theoretically, they could have selected any color, but they selected the color blue and colors in the ultraviolet spectrum that we can't see, but insects can. And that's when we said we must have put our finger on something interesting, because we don't see colors in the ultraviolet spectrum, but insects see them very well, and they see the color blue as well. So, in fact, we think this tiny microscopic striation is a trick flowers use to create bright blue colors in an easy and energy-efficient way that insects perceive very well. And because they are bright, they can be seen from far away. So that was the discovery we made. And which is very beautiful name, like the name of a Persian poem. And could you give us some examples of flowers with a blue halo? Maybe very common ones that the listeners and I would know. 
Most of these blue halo flowers are very difficult for us to perceive because we realize that if we change the background, these flowers also have a pigment in the, in the background. Many yellow flowers have a blue halo. When there is a yellow background, it is very difficult for us to see. The blue halo becomes almost invisible because the cells perceiving light in our eyes are very sensitive to yellow and are actually completely saturated by it. So that's why we had to experiment with bees to study if it was the same for them. And for black bees, no. Yellow doesn't bother them. They see the color blue very well. Many yellow daisies have this exact blue halo at the base of their petals. Species that are very close to poppies also have this blue halo. But again, it's hard to see them. Another select species we are spending a lot of time working on in the laboratory is a type of wild hibiscus that actually... It's a weed. <laughs> it's a plant that grows very well, very easily. We like weeds a lot because they're easy to grow and are very good laboratory models. It's a pretty weed. Its flowers are white, but at the center of the flower, there's a big, dark purple mark, almost black. A lot of pigments and the presence of this very dark pigment actually makes the blue halo very visible. So these are flowers that grow everywhere in Australia and New Zealand. And we can actually see the blue halo very well on these flowers. And tulip flowers, one very famous ornamental tulip called Queen of the Night, which was created to try and get a black tulip, and it's not black. It's dark purple, actually. But on this tulip, you can also see the blue halo very well. The hibiscus you're talking about is the hibiscus trianum. Exactly. So I grow both queen of night and hibiscus trianum. I'm so happy. I've got blue halos in my field. Cash me donc, c'est un, un hibiscus trianum de 1856. <rire> c'est fou. Qui vient d'un bassin lacustre vidé au Cachemire. Et donc là, on voit bien le, le cœur un peu violacé. Non, ouais, on en a même les étamines. Qui ont encore le pollen. Oui, donc, les couleurs, généralement, se conservent assez bien quand la plante a été séchée dans des bonnes conditions. Une fois que c'est sec, à l'abri de la lumière... La, la fleur va se conserver dans, dans ses couleurs d'origine. Donc effectivement, c'est crème et violet. C'est émouvant. Et donc là, avec le pollen de, de ce petit hibiscus de 1856, si on le prélevait, on pourrait peut-être activer... S'il est vivant, oui. Mais, mais ah ouais, je ne sais pas combien de temps ça vit. Là, là si ça a moisi, le, le pollen mmh. va être tué. Par contre, là, je vois des feuilles vertes. On peut extraire de l'ADN de ces feuilles. C'est quoi exactement l'avantage pour un insecte So, what exactly is the benefit for an insect to associate with a plant, or the opposite What's the benefit for a plant to associate with an insect Like every relationship, a relationship that works well and lasts in the long run is a relationship that brings something beneficial to both parties. And that's truly what we have with plants and insects. So, for insects, flowering plants are a source of protein through pollen grains and sugar through nectar, so a source of energy, really. They're also a source of temperature and heat. Insects are cold-blooded animals. They're not capable of regulating their temperature. But bees, for example, need a minimum temperature to be able to fly. 
Flying is an activity that burns a lot of energy metabolically, and bees actually need a lot of food, but also to be able to keep a specific temperature. That's why sometimes when bees wake up too early in the year, we see them on the ground. They're not necessarily sick, sometimes they're just too cold. So many insects actually sleep in flowers, come into flowers because flowers produce heat. And that's another reward. They come to the flower to get warm. There's also an incredibly fascinating field of research that shows that not only can bees get proteins and sugar via nectar and pollen, but also a whole bunch of medicine molecules that can help them get rid of microbes or parasites. So, really, flowers are an amazing supermarket for bees. It's a bit like having many different shops with many things ready for them at the insect's disposal. And for plants, obviously, most flowering plants have both male and female organs, which enable them to self-fertilize, as we say. They're able to produce seeds by themselves. The problem is that when self-fertilization happens, it's a bit sad because from a genetic perspective, there's no mixing. In fact, they just use their own genes and produce the same thing. So, for flowering plants, it's really interesting to mix genes to create something new, as it is for animals. And for this reason, that's why insects are useful. Because if you picture an entire field with many flowers, there are often many species. It's not very beneficial for a flowering plant to have its pollen be taken but dropped off on the wrong species, because it won't work. So that's why, actually, flowering plants like to establish quite exclusive relationships with pollinating animals to make sure or at least to increase chances that the pollen will land on another flower, but of the same species, so that the pollination works. So, not much polyamory in the relationship. I can't see your laboratory, but I imagine that your lab is filled with flowers, and I guess you're the one taking care of them. So, to be a geneticist or a plant geneticist, you have to know how to grow. Voilà, pas exactement. For moi, c'est la partie... Well, not exactly. For me, one of the biggest perks of the job is that, yes, it's very intellectual work. But it's also craft work, actually. Our hands are regularly in the soil, and it's also a pleasure to grow our own plants, especially when they are plants that help us understand something new. To think that we were the first to understand and find the gene that allows them to, think, to paint their petals pink. I've spent a lot of time outdoors, in nature, in the countryside, picking plants, boiling them, crushing them, watching them. I think it's something very important to simply marvel, even without understanding, to watch plants grow. But I think it's part of human nature to marvel at the world in which we live. Merci beaucoup. Merci à vous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flowers, the Kenzo Parfum podcast. You can find the series on all your podcast platforms. In the next episode of Flowers, we will be meeting Cynthia Fan, a florist and researcher in Edinburgh. I am Noline Serda, and Flowers is a Kenzo Parfum podcast produced by Louis Creative. Masami Charlotte Lavo and I have co-written this episode. Camille Bichler is in charge of production, along with Kenza Alal Ok. Charles de Silvia is on sound production, and Eve Gano was responsible for the sound recording. The original music was composed by Marine Kemery.